It was a big test for the vice president of the United States, a test of his competence and his fitness to serve as second in command, just a heartbeat away from the presidency. And in that moment, the vice president failed. He failed to spell the word potato. Potato. Add a little bit to the end there. Spell that, spell that again. A little bit on the end. Think of potato. How does it? You're right phonetically, but what else? There you go. All right. All right. That was former Vice President Dan Quayle in 1992 telling a child to add an E to the end of the word potato. Lesson for all kids and adults everywhere. There is no E at the end of the word potato. I myself remember at the time vowing never to spell potato wrong again. It was a signal moment. And yeah, moments like that earned Dan Quayle a reputation as kind of a bumbling vice president, not, not maybe the sharpest tool in the shed. But in late December of 2020, then Vice President Mike Pence was desperate. Donald Trump was refusing to concede the election despite having clearly lost to Joe Biden. And Trump was putting immense pressure on his vice president to use his ceremonial role in counting the electoral votes to deny President Biden's victory and instead falsely proclaim Trump the winner of the 2020 election. And so Mike Pence called one of the few people on this earth who had ever held that ceremonial role before. He called Dan Quayle. This is from Bob Woodward and Robert Costa's book, Peril. Quote, over and over, Pence asked if there was anything he could do. Mike, you have no flexibility on this. None. Zero. Forget it. Put it away, Quayle told him. Pence pressed again. You don't know the position I'm in, Pence said. I do know the position you're in, Quayle responded. I also know what the law is. You listen to the parliamentarian. That's all you do. You have no power. The man who could not spell the word potato, acting as a voice of reason. How we underestimated you, Dan Quayle. During this period, Vice President Mike Pence, he was obviously frantically seeking advice from experts. Eventually, he called Michael Ludig, a former judge and a deeply respected jurist within the conservative movement. But Judge Ludig told Pence the same thing. Pence had zero authority to change the outcome of the election. By early January, Pence and his lawyers were in the White House openly arguing with Trump and his lawyer, John Eastman, about whether or not the vice president had the authority to do what Trump wanted. Here was Pence aide Greg Jacobs' testimony to the January 6th committee about that very specific period. Our review of text, history, um, and frankly, just common sense all confirmed the vice president's first instinct on that point. There is no uh, justifiable basis to conclude that the vice president has that kind of authority. But President Trump continued to pressure Pence, both privately and publicly. On January 4th, Trump ratcheted up the pressure at a rally in Georgia. And I hope Mike Pence comes through for us, I have to tell you. I hope that our great vice president our great vice president comes through for us. He's a great guy. On January 5th, Trump kept at it, tweeting, the vice president has the power to reject fraudulently chosen electors. 
By the morning of January 6th, just hours before rioters would storm the Capitol, Trump called Pence one last time. And by all accounts, Trump was furious. Listen to what aides of the president told the January 6th committee. Did you hear any part of the phone call, even if just this, the end that the president was speaking from? I did, yes. All right, and what did you hear? So as I was dropping off the note, um, I, I, my memory, I remember hearing the word wimp. Either he called him a wimp. I don't remember if he said, you are a wimp, you'll be a wimp. Wimp is the word I remember. Something to the effect, this is, the wording's wrong. I made the wrong decision four or five years ago. And the, the word that she relayed to that the president called the vice president, I apologize for being impolite, but do you remember what she said her father called him? The P word. A wimp. The P word. Those were the words that the then president of the United States used to describe his own vice president. And when the moment came, Pence prepared to do what his oath and, by the way, the U.S. Constitution required him to do. And that was when a mob of violent Trump supporters began to descend on the Capitol. And President Trump tweeted out one final missive about his vice president. Quote, Mike Pence didn't have the courage to do what should have been done. The mob got the message. I'm telling you what, I'm hearing the Pence. I hear the Pence just caved. No. Is that true? I didn't I'm hear hear, I'm hearing no. reports that Pence caved. No I'm way. telling you, if Pence caved, we're going to drag <laughs> through the streets. You <laughs> politicians are going to get <laughs> drugged through the streets. Yes. I guess the hope is that there's such a show of force here that Pence will decide to do the right show. thing, according to Trump. During the January 6th hearings, the nation got a glimpse of just how close that mob came to Mike Pence that day. The vice president was escorted out of the chamber. He was taken down to a loading dock in the basement of the Capitol, where he refused to get into a waiting armored limousine because Pence was worried the Secret Service might take him away from the Capitol, might stop him from doing the thing he knew he needed to do. Since then, Mike Pence has spoken carefully and sparingly about what happened leading up to January 6th. He wrote a book about his experience that left readers with more questions than answers about what truly happened that day. In speeches and in TV interviews, he's obliquely referenced his final days with the former president, like this interview with David Miro of ABC News, where Pence recounted the exchange between him and his former boss on the morning of January 6th. I picked up the phone and the president uh, asked me where I was on the electoral count that would take place that day. And I told him, uh, despite what you issued last night from your campaign, Mr. President, you know, I've been very clear that I don't have the authority to reject votes during the electoral count or return those votes to the states. And uh, it went downhill from there. Um, the president became very irate on the phone. Uh, he, um, he said that if that was true, that he made a mistake five years ago. Up until today, those were the few public utterances that effectively were the only firsthand accounts from Mike Pence, and they were all federal investigators had to go on. Un until now. This morning, shrouded in a motorcade of black cars, the former vice president entered a federal courthouse to testify before a federal grand jury 
in an investigation into the man he spent four years serving. Mike Pence was there for more than seven hours. So yes, I mean, Mike Pence wrote a book about what happened. And yes, he talked about it in TV interviews. Yes, he has repeatedly sort of soft-shoot around it in speeches. But this is the first time that this vice president or any vice president has sat down under oath behind closed doors and told the Department of Justice about the extraordinary position he was in during one of the most extraordinary moments in American history. Joining us now is Congressman Adam Schiff, who served as a member of the January 6th committee. Congressman Schiff, thank you so much for joining me tonight. Um, there's really no one I'd rather talk to about this development at this moment. And I wonder how you're sort of looking at this in the broader lens of history, just the precedent that is being set, the fact that a vice president has gone into the Department of Justice uh, to testify for the Department of Justice about the actions of the president he formerly served to potentially undermine democracy. Well, it's a historic moment, uh, certainly unprecedented. I'm glad it's taking place. We were deeply frustrated in the January 6th committee that he wouldn't come and testify before our committee uh, and that we didn't have the luxury of time to compel him to do that. But he needed to tell that story and he needed to tell it under oath. Uh, it's one thing, as you point out, to go on a book tour and to carefully couch your words. Uh, the special counsel is not going to allow him to couch anything. Uh, he's going to have to be fully forthcoming. I think it signals that this is coming near the end of the special counsel's investigation. But but more than anything else, to me, it's an affirmation of the rule of law that works in this country, that a vice president can't hide behind uh, false claims of privilege or, you know, the political expedience of not wanting to testify against someone popular in his party. That that's not a good enough reason not to do your duty and that the courts would uphold his uh, his. Uh, a subpoena and compel him to, to speak. So uh, unprecedented, certainly very important to the investigation, but also, I think, validates the rule of law. Yeah, gold star day for the rule of law. I, you know, because of your deep familiarity with the events of January 6th, I'm interested in knowing what you would ask the vice president. What do we not know that we need to know about the run up uh, to January 6th and the day of itself? Well, you know, I can say, you know, as a former member of the January 6th committee, but also as a former prosecutor, that what the Justice Department is going to be most interested in is what was the president's state of mind? What was his intent? Uh, if you look at some of the powerful testimony we elicited of when Donald Trump is on the phone with top Justice Department officials, people he appointed, uh, he goes through all of these claims of fraud in the election, and the Justice Department people shoot them down one after another, say, there's no there there. We looked into that. That wasn't true. And what does the president say? He says, just say the election was corrupt and leave the rest to me and the Republican congressman. That's powerful evidence of intent. The prosecutors, uh, the special counsel, they're going to be interested in what other powerful evidence of the president's malign intent, his culpability uh, is in Mike Pence's testimony. That is, did he acknowledge to Mike Pence uh, as he acknowledged to his own top Justice Department officials that he knew these claims of fraud were false, that he knew Mike Pence didn't have the authority to do what he wanted. Uh, if, for example, the reports are that he told Pence, uh, if the reports are accurate, that he told Pence, you know, you're too honest to do what I want you to do, that's an admission that he knows it would require deception and lying. So I think it's intent that the prosecutors are really going to want to get at and should. 
Yeah, first-hand account of uh, the president's intent seems to be very valuable in this. I do wonder, because Mike Pence tried to fight off the subpoena by invoking the speech and debate clause, and he is. some questions are going to be off the table for prosecutors because a judge has effectively granted limited privilege, if you will, on account of that speech and debate clause. Do you, how do you see that hampering a potential line of questioning? And do you, do you think there are key moments in and around January 6th that, that the DOJ can't ask about? I think it's going to have very limited uh, bearing on what the Justice Department really needs to know, because most of the damage was done before, uh, in terms of his conversations with the president, before he uh, presided over that session, before that speech and debate clause even arguably would apply. So those prior conversations with the president in December, uh, others in January, even the morning of, before Mike Pence walks into that chamber, I don't think there's any privilege uh, that applies. Uh, so I, I don't think they're going to be very limited in what they can ask. And I think the vice president uh, was going to be required to answer those questions. Uh, and I assume that he did. Uh, so I, I don't think it's going to uh, adversely impact the prosecution at all. You're a lawyer. You know how this all works. When you look at the tea leaves, I mean, we know that Mike Pence says he didn't want to testify, but he's put so much out there. His top aides have testified in front of the grand jury. Do you think he's ready to, to tell all uh, behind closed doors? And is there a chance any of this is going to come out for public consumption at some point? Well, he, he resisted uh, telling what he knew. He resisted uh, with our committee. He resisted until he was compelled to by the court. Um, you know, Mike Pence is thinking about Mike Pence. He's thinking about his presidential campaign. He doesn't want to have to do, uh, you know, one thing that he's not required to do uh, that might alienate any of the Trump voters. Uh, so, uh, you know, I'm sure the special counsel is going to have had to pry everything out of him that they needed. Um, so I don't think that this was Mike Pence deciding, OK, here's the time to, to do a full accounting. I think this was the moment when Mike Pence was told, you're going to have to set your presidential uh, campaign aside. You're going to have to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. The idea that Mike Pence is still trying to court Trump supporters. I'm not going to comment on that logic, but <laughs> anyway, we will wait to see what comes out of all of this. Congressman Adam Schiff, thank it's you. Potato. So Go ahead. It's potato logic. <laughs> it's potato. I was just harkening back to <laughs> it's potato logic. I see what you did right there. Thank you so much, Congressman, for making the time tonight. Pleasure. Joining us now is Devlin Barrett, national security and law enforcement reporter for The Washington Post. Devlin, thank you for making some time to chat about what is going down here. I just wonder um, if you're reading anything into the fact that the vice president spoke uh, in front of that grand jury for seven hours today. Right. So we know it was a significant time, time, amount of time that he spoke. And we also knew that there's been a lot of legal buildup to get to this moment. I think what you can read out of that is that Mike Pence was one of the boxes that prosecutors needed to check to, to finish their investigation. I'm not saying they are finished, but, but he's an important part of this because there's a bunch of important conversations that they need to do everything they can to gather all the evidence they can about those conversations. I mean, I, I think everybody is asking this question about what is the signal in terms of the timeline of this special counsel probe. And I wonder if you have any, if you have a thesis on that. I know some people, people have said, look, this is this is the end. But that doesn't mean we're going to have, you know, a charging decision coming up anytime soon. How do you read this in, in the grand scheme of what Jack Smith is doing here? 
I don't think we can predict the future out of this. I do think we can say that, you know, they they had to do everything they could. The prosecutors had to do everything they could to get this story of the Trump conversations and the Eastman conversations with Mike Pence from Mike Pence. They have it from other people, but they have to they have to check every box. And, and Mike Pence is a big, important box for them. I also think you, you can think of this in terms of the special counsel investigation is has is covering a lot of different ground in a lot of different directions. So I think when it comes to conversations inside the White House, conversations directly uh, connected to the president himself on the issue of uh, the, the final tabulation of votes, Getting Mike Pence's testimony means that they are close to gathering all of that type of evidence. But there's still lots of other categories of evidence that they have to get and go through. I do wonder, I mean, Mike Pence has spoken in recent days, I think as recently as Monday, about the lawyers that were surrounding President Trump. If we have time to play that sound, could we please do that? Is there anything that you could tell the grand jury? that either the former the former president or a member of senior staff that you saw and observed commit a crime well I, you know i just i just don't know leland if it's criminal to take bad advice from lawyers and this was an instance as i wrote about a great life yeah. in my memoir where in the immediate days leading up to january 6 i, I saw a a cast of characters, lawyers that frankly should never have been allowed on the White House grounds, giving the president uh, counsel that was just simply not grounded in history or the Constitution and the law. So uh, we'll, we'll, uh, we'll comply with the law. We'll tell our story. This seems to be sort of like the convenient middle ground for Pence to admit that bad things were done, but try and shift the blame to the lawyers. Having said that, I mean, how do you rate the peril that potentially John Eastman and Rudy Giuliani may be in, given what the president, vice president is saying and the fact that he testified in front of a grand jury and is likely to have talked about those bad lawyers? I think you can see a lot of ways in which the prosecutors are looking very closely at people like John Eastman and Rudy Giuliani. That, that's clear. I think Mike Pence is another avenue of gathering that kind of evidence. And so I think that is important. But I also think what Pence said in that clip is important in this sense. I, I don't necessarily think of Mike Pence as, I don't assume that that evidence is particularly damaging to Donald Trump. Mike Pence may even, as a witness, try to help Donald Trump. But I think the experience of Mike Pence overall is important evidence for the entirety of this case and the entirety of what prosecutors have to decide as to whether there are criminal charges here. Do you think, um, Devlin, that what Pence says behind closed doors is eventually going to come out? I mean, assuming there is, I, I suppose if there's eventual prosecution, there's a high likelihood that we're going to find out what he said. Is that right? Right. If, if there were a trial on any of these subjects, presumably we would get some understanding of what Mike Pence said in the grand jury. I think, frankly, with high-profile investigations like this, uh, there's, a, there's a high chance that at some point uh, this version will come out. But Mike Pence has been very adamant that my private version will be the same as my public version. The only difference, though, is he is saying it under oath and the DOJ can ask some follow-up questions, which I'm sure they will have. Devlin Barrett, thank you for making the time tonight. I really appreciate it. Thank you. We have a lot more to get to this evening. What is happening to the Fox News audience now that Tucker Carlson is no longer on their airwaves? 
Plus, lawyers for Donald Trump want a deta- wrote a detailed letter asking for the DOJ to basically close up shop on that Mar-a-Lago investigation. And wait till you hear who Trump's lawyers sent that letter to. That's next. Stay up to date on the biggest issues of the day with the MSNBC Daily Newsletter. Each morning, you'll get analysis by experts you trust, video highlights from your favorite shows. 2024 is now truly the most important election in the history of our country. Previews of our podcasts and documentaries, plus written perspectives from the newsmakers themselves, all sent directly to your inbox each morning. Get the best of MSNBC all in one place. Sign up for MSNBC Daily at MSNBC.com. Here on MSNBC, we are staying on top of several fast-moving stories. Today's news requires more facts. A new report finds the climate crisis is getting much worse. More context. We are seeing record numbers of people crossing into the United States just in the southern border. And more ground covered. The mission will continue to carry out regime change in the Gaza Strip. The world's never been harder to understand. That's why it's never been more important to try. MSNBC. Understand more. Here's what Donald Trump's lawyers are demanding happen to the special counsel investigation into Trump's mishandling of classified documents down at Mar-a-Lago. Quote, the Department of Justice should be ordered to stand down. Stand down. That was the conclusion of a new 10-page letter from Trump's lawyers. Nothing to see here. Just shut the whole thing down. Now, criminal defense attorneys regularly appear before judges and argue that the charges against their clients should be dropped or that an investigation infringes on their clients' rights. But Trump's lawyers did not address that in the letter to the judge, nor did they address that letter to the Department of Justice. They didn't send it to a judge. They didn't send it to the DOJ. That letter, that plea for relief from Donald Trump's legal team, was addressed to a Republican member of Congress, specifically to the Republican chair of the House Intelligence Committee. And that is highly unusual. What Trump's legal team is asking here is for Congress to interfere with an independent criminal investigation. In their letter, the lawyers argued that it wasn't Trump's fault that those classified documents ended up at Mar-a-Lago. It was White House staffers and deep state government employees who were to blame. But as The Washington Post reported back in August, Trump saw himself, Trump himself oversaw the collection of documents that were sent to Mar-a-Lago. And that is not the only questionable part of this letter. Throughout it, Trump's lawyers attempt to blur the lines by basically ignoring the key allegations against Mr. Trump. Like, for example, that Trump obstructed investigators in their attempts to retrieve documents, that it took a year to get 15 boxes of highly sensitive documents back. And it also took a subpoena and a raid to get the other 103 classified documents that were also in Trump's possession. But no need to mention all of those other details in the letter. Nothing to see here, folks. That letter from Trump's lawyers to the top Republican on the House Intelligence Committee, it was also sent to Congressman Jim Himes, the ranking Democrat on that committee and a member of the Gang of Eight. And as a result, Congressman Himes has seen some of these documents after the group gained access to them two weeks ago. Joining us now to discuss all this is Congressman Jim Himes himself, member of the House Intelligence Committee. Congressman, thank you for joining me tonight. I I wonder if I'm in some way reading this wrong, but on its face, this effectively seems like a letter that's asking Republicans 
to override the separation of powers that is outlined in our Constitution, is it not? Yeah, no, that's right. I mean, in a couple of occasions in that letter, uh, the lawyers say the Department of Justice should be ordered to stop their investigation. I mean, it's just bizarre. These are lawyers, right? They know that there is no circumstance under which the Congress or the Intelligence Committee or the chairman of the Intelligence Committee has any authority uh, to order. And frankly, uh, massively improper, not surprising, but massively improper to imagine that political players, and in this building, we're all political players, uh, should get involved in questions around prosecution. Again, that not surprising, right? Right? This is the sort of hallmark of Donald Trump. But, you know, the letter is also full of such misrepresentations that as I read it, I thought, you know, these lawyers have really probably put themselves into some jeopardy uh, by suggesting that Biden did exactly the same thing, which, of course, is absolutely not true. Suggesting that the National Archives didn't try to help Donald Trump, which is not true. So, um, you know, again, classic sort of Trump legal strategy of just create as much uncertainty and doubt and fear as you possibly can. Do you think that the lawyers are emboldened by the behavior of Jim Jordan, um, who who is effectively, op I mean, opening an investigation at the bidding of Trump's defense team into the Manhattan DA's uh, criminal investigation into Trump. I mean, the, the, the separation of powers question or the, the role of Congress in an oversight capacity has been breached by one in, in one investigation. So, hey, couldn't we do it here, too? I mean, do you think that that's had any effect on this? Well, may maybe so. But again, Jim Jordan cannot be held to task by the Bar Association or by judges for his behavior. He is, of course, protected by being a political figure, uh, doing supposedly what uh, passes for his job. Lawyers, of course, can be held accountable by judges. And we've seen that with any number of the counsel that, uh, that, that uh, as Mike Pence so memorably said in your previous uh, segment, was giving uh, Donald Trump very, very bad advice. So, um, you know, look, at the end of the day, I think these lawyers understand that they are dealing with a very serious situation, a very serious special prosecutor with a set of facts that is pretty uncomfortable to them. And I know that they feel like those set of facts and, the, and uh, up against the law is an uncomfortable thing because they are doing these games, uh, these PR stunts that frankly make absolutely no sense. But again, it's sort of a classic attribute of the whole uh, Trump show, which is just create as much dust and uncertainty and fear as you possibly can and hope for the best. Uh, when you talk about the seriousness of this investigation into the document retention down at Mar-a-Lago, you're one of the few people that's actually laid eyes on some of these documents. We know from reporting that some of the documents you've likely seen include material on a, a foreign nation's nuclear capabilities, papers with secrets about China and Iran, briefings for foreign leaders ahead of foreign calls with foreign leaders, and maps containing sensitive intelligence. Now, I know you can't talk about what you have seen, but is there a way you might broadly characterize the material that was taken from Mar-a-Lago? Yeah, I certainly can't get into the details, but I can tell you, knowing generally what was in the materials, not just of Mar-a-Lago, but of what was recovered from Vice President Pence's um, uh, residence and what was recovered from uh, uh, President Biden's um, offices, I guess. Yeah, it's serious stuff. It is really serious stuff. And frankly, anything that is classified is potentially serious stuff. And look, just think about the way that just, you know, 10 days ago, people in this building were lighting their hair on fire over the leaks uh, out of this 109th intelligence unit in Cape Cod, Massachusetts, by this 21-year-old airman. Everybody here was lighting themselves on fire over 
over that. A lot of those same people, when uh, highly classified documents were found in Mar-a-Lago, they started saying, well, how classified was it? Was it really classified? Look, if it's classified, it is potentially damaging to the national security of the United States. And though I can't get into the details, I can tell you based on knowing what was in there that some of this stuff could be really, really damaging were it to find its way or were it to have found its way uh, into the hands of uh, our adversaries or frankly, anybody else. I, when you talk about how damaging it is to national security, in the letter, the Trump lawyers say, basically, shut down this DOJ probe, have the intelligence community do an assessment uh, about this classified material. But the intelligence community is already doing its own investigation into just how damaging th- this breach of national security is or the papers being um, in the wrong place are in terms of national security. Uh, do we have any sense of where that investigation is and when we will have conclusions about the value of these documents to America's safety? Yeah, so um, that investigation, that damage assessment has been underway for some time, and we've gotten some preliminary um, uh preliminary judgments about what the answer may be there. But this is tough stuff. There's a lot of documents there. And what you care about in a document is not so much what the document says, but you have to go back and look at how did we come to know these things? Because it is in the how we came to know these things, whether it was a technical collection mechanism, or maybe it's a person, a human intelligence source, you really need to go back and say, you know, could the Russians or whoever uh, kind of work their way backwards to that source? That's a matter of life and death for humans. And frankly, it's a matter of life and death if technical collection get uh, get uh, get compromised. Congressman Jim Himes, thank you for making the time tonight. Um, uh, we look forward to hearing more as this all unfolds. Thank you. We have still more to come this evening, including another dramatic day on the witness stand as E. Jean Carroll faces off against Donald Trump's lawyer over the accusation that Trump raped her. Plus, after firing Tucker Carlson, Fox News gets a dose of reality. We will explain that next. There comes a point when the right to vote requires a fight to vote. MSNBC Films presents Battleground Georgia, a story that explores the ugly history of voter suppression and how Georgia is leading the charge against it. Something has to change. The old South is being replaced by the new South. Battleground Georgia, part of the Turning Point documentary series from executive producer Trevor Noah. Sunday, May 19th at 9 p.m. Eastern on MSNBC. Hi, I'm Jonathan Capehart, and I'm excited to share some great news. Both The Saturday Show and The Sunday Show are available as a podcast. Every weekend, I look forward to bringing you the most important political news and the newsmakers who are creating policies that affect your life. For me, it's all about the conversation. That's when news is revealed and understanding begins. Search for Saturdays and Sundays with Jonathan Capehart and follow. The day after Fox News called the 2020 election for Joe Biden, Fox host Tucker Carlson texted one of his producers. Do the executives understand how much credibility and trust we've lost with our audience? We're playing with fire for real. An alternative like Newsmax could be devastating to us. The next day, the far right outlet that Tucker Carlson feared, Newsmax, their ratings doubled from what was already an election season high. Every other major news outlet lost huge swaths of viewers, which makes sense. The election was over. 
But Newsmax was surging. By the end of the month, their audience was nearly 10 times its pre-election size. The network's secret sauce was that it was immediately all in on Trump's big lie. And Fox News executives, well, they were getting nervous. On November 10th, Fox News president Jay Wallace texted Fox's CEO, Suzanne Scott. The Newsmax surge is a bit troubling. It is truly an alternative universe when you watch, but it can't be ignored. Scott replied, yes. And Wallace followed up by texting, trying to get everyone to comprehend we are on war footing. In their now settled defamation lawsuit against Fox News, Dominion alleged that this fear, Fox's fear that they were losing their audience to Newsmax, that that was the thing that drove Fox to start pushing the big lie themselves. Dominion alleged that Fox executives pushed for their shows to tell Fox viewers what they wanted to hear, regardless of the truth. It was something they referred to internally as respecting the audience. On November 19th, a Fox White House correspondent got chastised by her boss for fact-checking Rudy Giuliani's election fraud claims. She was told she had to do a better job respecting the audience. On November 24th, Fox host Sean Hannity texted his producers, respecting this audience, whether we agree or not, is critical. Fox has spent the month spitting at them. Now, today, Fox News finds itself in a similar position to the one it was in in the hours after the 2020 election. On Monday night, the first night since the network parted ways with its star, Tucker Carlson, his old hour, 8 p.m., was down 20% in total viewers. On Tuesday, it was down nearly 50%. Meanwhile, Newsmax is surging again. Monday's 8 p.m. show had more than triple its normal audience. And the big story over there on Newsmax? How Fox News ditching Tucker Carlson shows that Fox News is too far left. So the question now is how Fox decides to regain the respect of its audience. Coming up next, what Trump's lawyer did to try to discredit E. Jean Carroll and what that says about the extraordinary times in which we are living. That is next. Today in a Manhattan federal courtroom, E. Jean Carroll took the stand for a second day to testify in her civil battery and defamation lawsuit against former President Donald Trump. Now, Carroll says Trump raped her in a New York department store in the 1990s, an allegation that Trump has repeatedly publicly denied, calling it a hoax and a lie and a scam. To kick off cross-examination today, Trump's defense lawyer, Joe Tacopina, followed his client's lead. He peppered Miss Carroll with questions that appeared to be aimed at showing her to be a fame-hungry, financially and politically motivated liar. During his opening statement on Tuesday, Mr. Takapina asked the jury, it all comes down to do you believe the unbelievable? And that has been his strategy thus far. Focus on the idea of plausibility. Mr. Takapina spent a lot of time today highlighting Miss Carroll's memory lapses and any inconsistencies in her account. He asked questions about why Ms. Carroll didn't call the police after the alleged rape, why she didn't see a doctor after the assault, why she didn't go to the hospital. After Carroll testified that she used her knee to try to push Trump away during the attack, Takapina asked what part of her knee she used, prompting Carroll to stand up in front of everyone and demonstrate how exactly she did it. Later, uh, Mr. Takapina asked Carroll why she didn't scream or call for help during the alleged assault, and she responded, I'm not a screamer. You can't beat up on me for not screaming. 
As Takapina continued pressing, Carol raised her voice and added, I'm telling you, he raped me whether I screamed or not. Mr. Takapina insisted he was only asking questions, but Ms. Carroll called him out for asking the questions that victims fear the most. Quote, women who don't come forward, one of the reasons they don't come forward is they are asked why they didn't scream. Some women scream, some women don't. It keeps women silent. Mrs. Carroll is not the only one who didn't appreciate this line of questioning. Judge Lewis Kaplan called certain questions argumentative and repetitive. He also interrupted Mr. Takapina several times, ordering him to clarify and move on. Despite those admonishments, Takapina's questions became so badgering, touching on subject matter that both parties agreed previously was off limits, that Judge Kaplan decided he'd had enough. The judge interjected one last time and then dismissed the jury while Mr. Takapina was in the middle of a question about the dress Miss Carroll wore on the day of the assault. This is that exchange. Mr. Takapina, now, even though you didn't keep an account of this alleged rape in your diary, you did keep the dress you support, supposedly wore that day? Carol, yes. Didn't throw it out? Carol, no, it was a beautiful dress. You didn't burn it? Carol, no, I would never burn a beautiful item of clothing. Judge Kaplan, we're going to break here for the day. We will return on Monday at 10 a.m. And that was that. Joining us now is New York Times columnist, author, and MSNBC contributor Michelle Goldberg. Michelle, it's so good to see you. I I found so yeah. much of the um, the transcript, what was said in court today, um, riveting and extraordinary and distressing. And one of the most sort of excruciating exchanges, but also enlightening exchanges, was E. Jean Carroll's description of how she thought about this, what she calls rape in the moments after it happened. And I just want, for people who haven't read this, I just want to, I want to read this um, description and this exchange between her and Mr. Takapina. Now, Carol testified she thought Trump was going to, they were in the lingerie part of Bergdorf Goodman's, and she thought Mr. Trump was going to actually try on the lingerie himself. She thought this was all kind of a funny interaction they were having. And then everything changes when they get to the dressing room. Um, and that's where she says Trump raped her. And then Miss Carroll says on the stand, I was going to tell my friend Lisa the story, which I thought was hilarious. And then I got to the point where I had to tell Lisa that Trump pulled down my tights. And before I said that, Lisa had to tell me to stop laughing. My mind, I think I was slightly disordered and disoriented. Takapina says, you just said, Miss Carroll, that you were going to tell Lisa the story that you thought was hilarious. This is Carroll. Yes. Takapina. So you thought the story of being raped by Donald Trump? Carol. No, I didn't think that story. I didn't think that story was hilarious. I thought that story was tragic. I wanted to tell Lisa because I hoped Lisa would tell me, oh, no, Eugene, it's OK. It's OK. It's all right. But when I heard the words, when Lisa said he raped you, those were the words. Those were the words that brought the reality to my forefront of my mind. There is so much that society puts on women in the aftermath of alleged sexual assault. And this goes so far in explaining the complexity of emotions, right? Where you don't want to believe that what just happened to you was actually rape. I found it just remarkably frank. How did you read it, Michelle? I would say two things. I mean, yes, remarkably frank and it, and, and just remarkably real. You know, I think that in that moment, you are so stunned. You're so kind of, you know, you can't, you think, is this really happening? Could this be really happening? 
And, you know, you don't want to believe it. What really strikes me, though, is just the bizarre full circle, full circleness of this moment. When you think about Me Too, Me Too started, I think, in response to Donald Trump's presidency. There were women all over this country who were so angry. They felt so demeaned, so degraded that this person had been elected and there was very little they could do about it. And so they went after the abusers kind of lower down on the totem pole. They went after the abusers in their own lives and institutions in which they had some kind of power or influence. And it kicked off this huge movement that eventually catalyzed Eugene Carroll to tell her own Me Too story. And it brings us to this moment when Donald Trump is finally um, being held to account or potentially held to account for the abuse of women, both that he's been accused of and, you know, abuse of women that in some cases he's boasted about. But in this questioning, it's almost as if Me Too didn't happen. It's almost as if all of the kind of reckoning a public dialogue that we've had about why victims don't act in the way that, you know, people who watch too much, too many crime dramas think that they should act, you know, why they don't act that way. And yet, you know, why sort of sexual assault often doesn't play out the way people imagine that it's going to play out and why that doesn't make it any less traumatic. It's almost as if none of that has actually happened with this attorney. Yeah, I, I I thought the exact same thing. The idea that we're in this kind of pre-Me Too moment where, you know, so much has been unearthed about the ways in which we doubt w- women when they tell us things. And that this notion of women as unreliable narrators when it comes to their own bodies, like a lot of that was debunked in the aftermath of Me Too. And yet this is kind of a Jurassic version of American society where none of that, that chapter didn't unfold and that we didn't have a sort of come to Jesus moment where it's like, you know, you should believe women when they tell you things. I just wonder if you think it's going to work as a tactic. The judge seems really skeptical of, of you know, Mr. Takapina's line of questioning. I I cannot, I, I can't predict whether it will work. I mean, I think that, you know, New York City is a city that has no love loss for Donald Trump, but I, I don't know. You know, I think we've made some progress since Me Too, but people still love to doubt women. You know, we saw some of these, we saw similar questions being put to Amber Heard. You know, why didn't you go to the hospital in the defamation case that Johnny Depp brought against her and the jury, you know, the the jury bought it. And so, you know, I think that the reason that lawyers have tried to impugn the credibility of of rape victims is because people you know, often reflexively doubt women's tales of abuse in the way that they don't reflective, reflexively doubt, um, you know, kind of other crime victims talking about things that happened to them. Yeah. And certainly the the leading trend right now, especially among Republican lawmakers, is to not believe women when they're talking about things that happen to their own body. If on the subject of abortion, there are states now where if a woman wants to have an abortion because she says she's been raped, she has to have a police report to back it up. I think in Florida, Idaho, West Virginia, Georgia and Utah, this is it feels like it's what of course correction from the years in which we sort of took what women were saying about sexual assault at face value. Well, right. I think that it, it underlines how much of an exception that was, how much of a kind of strange, bright, unusual moment Me Too was and how evanescent it was, how quick, how eager people were to 
return to a kind of pre-Me Too or even, you know, very pre-Me Too status quo where women's word, you know, where women's words are simply worth less than men's are. Uh, What we do know is this trial is not yet over. This is New York City. It is not another part of the country. And um, the trial is still unfolding. Michelle Goldberg, thank you for making the time tonight, my friend. We will be right back. That is the show for tonight. I'll see you again tomorrow. 